This is a Faith FM podcast. You're listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Hello there, and thanks again for joining me once again. I'm Robbie Bergen, and you're listening to The Faith Experiment. And this is episode number 19. And I'm calling this episode The Anatomy of the Bible. Now, if you're joining me for the first time on The Faith Experiment, The Faith Experiment is about putting faith into practice. And so far on the show, I've been sharing with you my own personal journey of faith and how I went from a non-believer to a faith experimenter. And now we're starting to explore how to study the Bible. Now, if you've missed any of the previous episodes and you want to catch up on some of the details, then go ahead and get the Faith FM app from your app store or go to faithfm.com.au and look under the podcast section for The Faith Experiment. You can also find The Faith Experiment on all good podcasting platforms, making it easy for you to stay up to date. Well, I love hearing from you on The Faith Experiment, and last week I gave you all the chance to connect with me and join my Bible Tips SMS study group. And it was amazing to see how many of you joined it. It was just awesome to see. Now, I want to hear from you. Text me or email me what you learned during the last seven-day exercise of reading the book of Philippians. I want to hear from you. I want to hear your insights. I want to hear what you've gained. I want to hear what you've learned. So let me know by texting me on 0488-45311 or email me on robbie at faithfm.com.au and let's make this an interactive community of faith experimenters. Now, if you didn't join that group last week, you can still join today by texting hashtag FE18. That's hash FE18 to 0488-45311 and you'll be added to the group. Now, on this episode, I have a great ebook to give away called The Deep Teachings of Jesus. It's an ebook which focuses on some of the key teachings of Jesus, and it beautifully illustrates how to help you connect the dots and bring out some of the amazing insights into the simple but profound thoughts of the greatest teacher that has ever lived. So stick around to get the code word during the show. You'll need to text the code word to 0488-45311. So save that number in your phone, 0488-45311, and wait for the code word. Now, I mentioned in the last episode that as I've met with people and shared my story and my experiences during this great faith experiment, the most common question I've been asked is, how do you study the Bible? And as I said in the last episode, even though this is a good question and an important question, it's what I call a surface question. Because a surface question like this will only ever give a surface answer. It will give you a formula, a framework, a pattern or a template, which might give you the satisfaction in knowing how to study the Bible, but it won't lay a deep and lasting foundation in your own faith experiment for Bible and Bible study. And so I proposed in the last episode to take the next few episodes to explore this topic of Bible study, but to take time and to dig deep with a series of more probing questions that will, I hope, help you see the Bible in a new and brighter light. So in the last episode, we explored the question, what is the purpose of the Bible? Because our answer to that question will deeply influence our approach to Bible study. For example, let's say your answer to the question, what's the purpose of the Bible, is something like, it's God's word for me or for us. 
then generally speaking, your attitude towards studying the Bible will be in proportion for your need to know God's will, what he says, what he doesn't say. So the study of the Bible becomes more of a knowledge thing for you, almost subconsciously. Or if your answer to that same question is, the Bible is God's love letter for us, then your attitude towards studying the Bible will again be in proportion to your need to either see or be reminded of God's love for you. And so if you feel that you're in a good space with God and you feel loved and you know you're loved, then your priority of studying God's word will not be that high on your list. Or if your answer is that the Bible is the history of God and man, again, your priority to studying the Bible will be in proportion to wanting to know that history. And so you can play the same cause-to-effect game with this answer you give to this question. What's the purpose of the Bible? And over and over again, you'll see that in proportion to your answer, so too will be your effort and desire and ability to study the Bible. And so on the last episode, we established that the Bible's own explanation for its purpose was pretty simple. It was pretty clear. It's actually pretty profound as well. We saw from the teaching of Jesus that the Bible's purpose is to serve as a living and breathing martyr or witness, testifying to who Jesus is. And then we saw how that Paul explains how this practically works. As you spend time in the Bible or time with this witness of Jesus, there are four lenses that reveal Jesus. There is a lens of doctrine, a lens of reproof, a lens of correction, and a lens of instruction in righteousness. And through these lenses, we should come to know Jesus intimately. And the ultimate goal of the Bible, the ultimate goal of this witness, the whole purpose of the Bible, is summarized in Paul's message to Timothy, where he states this, that through the scriptures, that's through these four lenses, as they witness or testify of Jesus, it actually transforms us into complete men and women of God. And that makes us equipped for every good work. So as we come to the Bible as incomplete children, lost and broken, as we come to the Bible as the living, breathing witness of Jesus, and as we pick up its pages, it speaks to us of Jesus through the lenses of doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction. And as we spend time with the scriptures, it transforms us into complete children, whole, fixed, and now equipped with good works. Now, once again, if you missed the previous episode and you want to catch up on more of those details, then get the Faith FM app from your app store or go to faithfm.com.au and look under the podcasting section for the Faith Experiment. And you're looking for episode 18. That's where this whole journey of studying the Bible begins. Now, on this episode, I want to take up what I see as the next logical question. But before I do, Why don't you, wherever you are, assuming you're not driving in the car, but wherever you are, go grab yourself your Bible. Just whatever Bible you've got laying around the house, go grab it, bring it out, and uh, get ready to open it. Because I want you to actually experiment with your Bible in this episode. 
And it works best with a physical Bible. If you've got a phone, that's fine. If you've got a, a tablet, that's fine. But it would work better if you have a physical Bible. So if you're at home, if you're somewhere close to a Bible, go grab your Bible now and get ready to use it for some of the exercises I want to put you through in this episode. Now, if you can't do that, that's fine. Have a good listen. And when you get home, when you get a chance to grab your Bible, pick it up and practice these concepts. All right. Now that we understand the purpose of the Bible, we should turn our attention to the physical Bible itself. You see, the Bible is, as the physical book that you have there in your hand, is the tool for the trade of a Christian. And like any trade, you need to know not only your tools, but know how to use them. Take a saw, for example. There are many different kinds of saws. There's hand saws, there's electric saws, bench saws, jigsaws, and all of these saws have similar function. Their function is to cut something. But you need to know how to use them, where to hold them, how to keep yourself safe while performing the trade. You need to know how they work. Is it a reciprocal saw, which means that it, the blade goes back and forward? Is it a circular saw, which means that the saw spins around and around? Or is it a hand saw, which needs to go back and forward? Or is it a jigsaw, which goes up and down? So first you need to understand your tool. Then you need to understand the parts of the tool, how they work together, where you hold it, where you control it from, which is the part that's the action part. Now, once you know your tool intimately, And only after you know your tool intimately and how it works and how to use it, only then you will know which jobs you can use this tool for. For example, once you understand what a saw is for and how it works, you wouldn't go and use your saw to hammer in a nail into the wall. Or you wouldn't use a hammer to cut a piece of wood. You know what the tool is, you know how to use it, you know what its purpose is, and you know the right job for that tool. Pretty straightforward. Now, this might seem like an extreme example, but the same principles apply to the Bible. You see, the Bible is a tool for the Christian trade, and we need to know how its parts work, how they're all connected, what function they serve. You know, many times people use the Bible for a job it's not designed for, and they make a mess of the situation. You've all heard of Bible bashing, I'm sure. And you've all seen that there are hundreds of different churches who all claim to believe the same book. They all have the same Bible, which is the same tool, but they all apply it differently. They're using the tool in different ways, and as a result, they're arriving at different interpretations. And a lot of the time, it's because we're not using the Bible the right way. We end up mostly out of context, which leads us to wrong interpretations and ultimately either wrong understandings and beliefs or wrong applications. Now, did you know that one of the most common mistakes that people make is calling the Bible a holy book? Are you shocked? Are you surprised? Well, if you want to know why it's a mistake, stick around after the break when we will look at the anatomy of the Bible. And don't forget to stick around to get today's code word for today's giveaway. 
I'll be right back after this with The Faith Experiment. You're listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Connect with us via text message on 04888-45311. That's 04888-45311. Or send an email to robbie at faithfm.com.au. Yeah. 
listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Welcome back to The Faith Experiment. I'm your host, Robbie Bergen, and this is episode 19 of The Faith Experiment. I'm calling this episode, The Anatomy of the Bible. And coming up on today's show is the code word for this great ebook I've got for you called The Deep Teachings of Jesus. So in this episode, we're talking about the Bible and the study of the Bible. As we explore this question, we're breaking it down to look at the basics. In the last episode, we gained an understanding of what the purpose of the Bible is. And now we're going to start looking specifically at the anatomy of the Bible, or how the Bible is made, how it's constructed. And before the break, I said to you that the most common mistake people make is calling the Bible a holy book. Now, even though I was stirring you just a little bit, there is some truth to what I'm saying. You see, the Bible is not actually a book. It's a collection of books, which would technically make it a holy library. You see, each book inside the Bible, well, it's exactly that. It's a book. So when we're talking about Matthew in the Bible, we're talking about a distinct book called Matthew. And so the Bible that you have in your hand right now is actually a library of books. So now that we know that the Bible is a collection of books and we know what the Bible is for, it's to show Jesus in order to transform us, let's start to find out what the Bible is and what the Bible is not. The Bible is the best-selling book in human history. Its moral, spiritual, and even political impact has been absolutely profound and unmistakable. There's no question that the Bible has been the most influential book in human history, as well as the biggest and best seller. Today, virtually every household, in the West at least, has one, if not more, copies of the Bible. And according to the Guinness Book of World Records, since 1815, the Bible has sold approximately 2.5 billion copies. 2.5 billion copies. And that doesn't take into account all of the free Bibles that get printed and given out every year for free. Over $200 million is spent on the Bible every single year in the United States. And the Bible has been translated into more than 2,200 languages or dialects. Now, what's interesting is most civil laws in the Western countries today have all got their origin based upon the Bible in some shape or form. For example, lying, that's come straight from the Bible. That was a law. Murder, again, from the Bible. Manslaughter from the Bible. The way these laws are framed and written, almost some in some instances in some countries, comes directly out of the Bible. And did you know that adultery, one of the commandments in the Bible, was a civil offense in Australia up until the year 1975 when it was delisted or decriminalized? But again, it came from the Bible originally. Even marriage was defined based on the teaching of the Bible right here in Australia, up until 2016. Up until 2016, marriage was defined as a man and a woman, and it cited biblical accounts for it. And again, in Australia, divorce in civil law was based upon the Bible, at least again till 1965. There had to be a good and biblical reason for divorce. 
even civil welfare frameworks in most Western countries have their roots from the Bible at some point in history. The Bible's also had a major impact on the English language. Many words were specifically created for the actual purpose to explain biblical concepts. You see, there's a word in Hebrew that when the English translators came across in terms of a, a day of judgment, a cleansing day of sin, it's known in Hebrew as Yom Kippur. But when they came to translating this portion of scripture into English, there was no English word that could explain the idea behind this Yom Kippur. And so the translators created a brand new word in English in order to convey this idea. And they did it by joining three words together. The word at, the word one, and the suffix of meant. And when they put these three words together, at, which means um, in the place or at a certain point, and the word one, which is a picture of unity, and the suffix of meant, which is the idea of a state, when they put these three uh, words together, it created a brand new word of at one meant, or atonement. And this word was created in the English language to explain the place or point where there would be a state of unity with God, an atonement with God. And the Bible has also created a whole range of sayings and phrases that we all take for granted in the English language. But their origin is directly from the Bible. Even as an atheist, I knew many of these expressions, even though I'd never even read the Bible, showing just how profound the impact of the Bible has is and has been upon the English language. Here's some examples of how English language has been influenced by the Bible and its stories. One expression is baptism of fire. I used to hear this even in some of the corporate settings when we had meetings where a, a new junior uh, engineer or a junior marketing director would be thrown into a very difficult or challenging um, set of circumstances and they'd say, oh, he had his baptism of fire today. Well, that expression comes directly out of the Bible of Acts chapter 2. Or there's this expression, that guy is a real Judas. What does that mean? Well, even as a non-Christian or a non-biblical reader, we know that a Judas is someone who betrays a friend. Then there's the expression, wow, that's a pearl of great price, meaning that something's very valuable for which someone's willing to give up everything they have to obtain it. This comes from one of the teachings of Jesus. And then there's the other expression, sheep without a shepherd. This is a, uh, an allusion to people in a state of confusion because they have no leadership. And yet, this comes directly from the Bible teachings. Another expression, to crucify someone, or they crucified him. You could probably remember hearing this expression every time a prime minister was changed in Australia. Such and such was crucified. Then there's the expression, well, that person was made a scapegoat which usually means that the person being accused is usually unfairly being accused, and the reason they're being accused is because it's deflecting attention from the real cause. Now, the scapegoat concept comes directly out of the Old Testament of the Bible, apple of my eye, another term of endearment describing someone as the center of the universe. That comes, again, straight from the Bible, apple of the eye. How about this expression? Let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. I used to hear that in my party circles. But that comes directly from the Old Testament. And then there's the expression, 
He's a real prodigal, that fellow. That's again coming directly out of the Bible. Or the Good Samaritan. We even have laws called the Good Samaritan laws. And this is about describing someone who gives a person help, a complete stranger, in a time of emergency. Again, coming straight out of the teachings of Jesus. Or this guy's a doubting Thomas, which would basically means a skeptic. That expression, again, coming from the Bible. Or that person has the patience of Job, meaning that someone's going through great difficulty and yet they're facing it with patience. What about the writings on the wall for that guy? Bad news. And the outcome is pretty obvious. This expression comes out of the book of Daniel. Or what about this one? Oh, that woman's a real Delilah or a real Jezebel. This is describing a, a pretty messed up sort of woman. Again, coming straight out of the Bible. And so there's no shortage of examples of how the Bible has influenced the English language. But the Bible has also had a profound influence upon many social changes. For example, slavery was abolished by people who saw it as being biblically wrong. You can read about it in the history of abolition in the United States, for example. They saw that all mankind were created equal in the sight of God. They wrote about it. They presented it in the U.S. Congress, the U.S. Senate. They even etched it into stone in monuments in Washington, D.C., in the United States that still stand there today. I've stood there and I've read it myself. The Bible has also influenced many great scientists who were motivated by the Bible to discover God's creation. Now, this is a long list of people, people who were being inspired by the Bible to discover the ins and outs of the creation of God. Here's just a few. Francis Collins, the leader of the Human Genome Project, one of the preeminent geneticists in the world. Francis Collins helped complete a groundbreaking research into human DNA and gene sequencing. There was Galileo, an astronomer, a physicist, an engineer, a philosopher, a mathematician. In his journal notes and entries, he cites Bible passages for his inspiration for much of his work. Then there was Lies Midner, an Austrian-Swedish physicist who worked on radioactivity and nuclear physics and first discovered nuclear fission. Another Bible believer looking to understand the inner workings of God's creation. And Francis Bacon, a English philosopher, statesman, a scientist, a jurist, an orator, an author. His works argued for the possibility of scientific knowledge based only upon inductive reasoning and careful observation of events in nature. And of course, Isaac Newton, the English mathematician, astronomer, theologian, author, and physicist who wrote, Gravity explains the motion of the planets, but it cannot explain who set the planets in motion. God governs all things and knows all that is or can be done. Then there was John Ray, an English botanist who wrote, the wisdom of God manifested in the works of the creation. Stephen Hales, the first person to measure blood pressure. Herman Bahav, who is the regarded as the founder of clinical teaching and of the modern academic hospital and is sometimes referred to as the father of physiology. And John Michel Hu, who is considered one of the greatest unsung scientists of all time. He was the first person known to propose the existence of black holes in publications. Joseph Presley, he is credited for discovering oxygen, and he invented soda water. 
Benjamin Silliman, the first person to distill petroleum. J.J. Thomas, credited with the discovery and identification of the electron and with the discovery of the first subatomic particle. And the list just keeps going on and on and on. All these great names of science were driven by their faith and their understanding of the Bible. The Bible has, without question, impacted the course of human history. It has influenced language and culture and science and technology. Well, it's time to take a short break now, but when we come back, we'll continue exploring today's topic of the anatomy of the Bible. And don't forget to stick around to get today's code word. I'll be right back after this with The Faith Experiment. The Faith Experiment is made possible because of people like you. If you enjoy what we are doing, please consider supporting us by making a donation on our website at faithfm.com.au slash donate. You take what? And you make it beautiful When love floods in We're restored forevermore We pray that brings the day to life We worship the peace, the dark with light Only by the blood are we set free We're mercy strong to carry shame And nail it to a tree Oh, you alone Oh, the power to redeem No guilt Oh 
You're listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Welcome back to The Faith Experiment. I'm Robbie Bergen, and this is episode 19 of The Faith Experiment. I'm calling this episode The Anatomy of the Bible. And coming up is today's code word, so be sure to stick around. Now, before the break, I shared with you how the Bible is the tool of the Christian trade. And we need to have a good understanding of the anatomy of this book, or should I say, this mini library, if we hope to use it appropriately. And just like that analogy I gave you of using a saw or a tool, we need to know the tool and how it works and how to use it and what it's for if we're to use it correctly for the job at hand. Now, there's no question that the Bible has influenced language and culture and science and technology. But what exactly is the Bible? Well, first of all, the Bible in English, at least in the New King James Version, contains 770,430 words. And the writing of the Bible took place over a period of 1,600 years and is the work of over 40 human authors. And it was written on three different continents, Africa, Asia, and Europe. And just all those factors alone make this book absolutely remarkable. To have such a volume of writing over a period that's about as long as the history of the Roman Empire, and written by 40 different people, all from varying backgrounds and various levels of education and experiences of three different cultural continents, and yet they compile this one library of material known as the Bible. Now, like any good library, the Bible can be divided into sections and categories. If you take out that Bible that you've got there in your hand, if you open it up to the front section of the Bible, you're going to find a table of contents. Now, in this table of contents, the first thing you're going to notice is that the Bible is made up of two sections. These two sections are called Testaments. You have an Old Testament and a New Testament. Now, you can think of these two Testaments as two divisions or as two witnesses. You have the Old Witness, which is kind of looking forward to when the Messiah would come or to when Jesus Christ would come. While the New Testament is anchored in looking back at the arrival of that Messiah or Jesus Christ. But I'll cover this in more detail in a future episode regarding these two witnesses, the Old and the New Testaments. But for now, the Bible is constructed, the anatomy of the Bible is constructed around the idea of two testaments or two witnesses. Now, when you look at the Old Testament, you're going to find that there are 39 books which are divided into four sections. Now, not all Bible editions will show these four sections on your table of contents, but the four sections are these. The first is the Pentateuch. The second is the historical books. The third, the books of wisdom. And fourth, the prophets. Now, what do these labels mean or these four sections mean? Well, first, the Pentateuch. Pentateuch is a Hebrew word which literally means the five books. This is the name given to the first five books ever written down that make up the Bible. Now, it just so happens that these first five books were all written by Moses. And these are the books of Genesis, 
Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. These five books lay the foundation for the relationship between God and man. They give us a context, they make sense of the world in which we live, and the promise of the Messiah who will come to remove the separation of sin and restore communion and union with God. These books also reveal the holiness of God and the boundaries of our relationship with Him and with sin. Now, the second category of the Old Testament is what is called the historical books. And this is made up of 12 books. The books of Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and the book of Esther. Now, these books, as the category name suggests, are historical books. They mostly show the history of how God worked in and through his people. And they show both the history and the future of the lines of the Messiah or of Jesus. The third category of books in the Old Testament is the books of wisdom. This section is made up of the books of Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon. These books use different styles of imagery to communicate wisdom. Now, wisdom, by definition, according to these same books we just looked at in this category, they describe wisdom as coming from God himself. And so as you spend time in the deep wells of wisdom in these books, you're actually drinking, so to speak, of the wisdom that God alone can impart. Now, the last category of the Old Testament is called the Prophets. And this section, as you might be able to tell, are the books which are named after prophets. And generally speaking, these books deal with prophecy. Some of them deal with an immediate time frame of prophecy for that particular context and for those people for which it was written, while other prophecies extend down past the original audience, and these prophecies serve a number of reasons, like showing God's signature in these manuscripts. They show that God is ultimately in control. They show that God has a timeline in which he interacts with human history. They show the promise, the time and the place and the work of the Messiah. They point to how, in a sense, this great controversy ends and how God will make all things new. And so each section, each book has a unique function or purpose in serving as the witness to Jesus, which we've already seen is the whole purpose of the Bible. Now, in the New Testament, we have 27 books, which are divided into five categories or sections. The first category is known as the Gospels. And the Gospels contain four books, the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are known as the Gospels because they follow the life and teachings of the good news of the arrival of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and the story of how he gave his life for the redemption of a lost race. The next category has only one book in it, and this category is known as history. And the one book in that category is the book known as Acts of the Apostles. Because this one book represents the history of the Jesus movement from his ascension through to the clear establishment of the movement as it grows from the Middle East and expands into Africa and into Europe. The third category is called Pauline, and this is made up of all the letters written by the Apostle Paul. 
and they reflect the majority of the New Testament, and they're full of doctrine and theology of God and the sacrifice of Jesus in the context of the great plan of salvation. The fourth category is called the general letters, because, as you guessed it, it contains general letters. The books in this category is James and First and Second Peter, First and Second and Third John and Jude. These books are more letters written to a specific audience with specific issues and challenges that faced the early followers of Jesus. Now, what's interesting is, is that every one of the issues in every one of these general epistles are not too dissimilar to the challenges we face today. And the last category also only has one book in. The last category is called Apocalyptic, and the book is the Book of Revelation, which is the only New Testament book which is written in apocalyptic nature. Now, this is a fancy word which literally just means prophecies dealing with destruction or an end of the world. But as we've seen, the purpose of the Bible is to serve as a witness of Jesus, and it's no different even with this apocalyptic book. In fact, the very opening verse of this book says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So the book was given to reveal Jesus Christ. So the Bible is made up of two testaments. One looks forward to Jesus. The other looks back at Jesus. Both testaments are made up of categories of books which have very specific focuses on the witness of Jesus. And knowing which one you are reading impacts how you read it, how you understand it, and how you apply it. Just like our saw example. Once you know what a saw is, what a saw is for, what the parts of the saw are, how to use the saw, you will know what jobs a saw is good for and what jobs it's not good for. The same applies to the Bible in each one of these books that make up the Bible. Now, if you'd like to visualize what I've just described, I prepared for you another infographic based on this episode. If you'd like to get it, all you need to do is text the hash code hash fe19 info. That's all one word. Start with the hash or the pound symbol. Then fe19 info all one word, no spaces. So, hash FE as in faith experiment, 19 as in episode 1919, and the word info, all one word, hash FE19 info. If you text that to our number 04888845311, that's 04888845311, I will send you a link to a graphic which describes in a visual way what I've been talking about in this segment. Well, it's time now to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll continue with the anatomy of the Bible. And don't forget to stick around to get today's code word. I'll be right back after this with The Faith Experiment. You're listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen, right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Connect with us via text message on 04 That's 04 Or send an email to robbie at faithfm.com.au. Welcome back to The Faith Experiment. I'm Roy Bergen, and this is episode 19 of The Faith Experiment. I'm calling this episode The Anatomy of the Bible, and coming up is today's code word. Now, before the break, I started sharing with you how the Bible is structured. 
And we saw how that the Bible is in two physical sections known as testaments. There's the Old Testament or the Old Witness, which has 39 books. And these 39 books are arranged in four categories. And all of these books point to the coming of the Messiah and have very specific focuses. And then we saw that there are 27 books of the New Testament, which are divided into five sections, which look at the life, teachings, and the impact of Jesus. The next part of the anatomy of the Bible that is important for us to understand when it comes to Bible study is how each of these 66 books are made up and constructed in the Bible. If you open up your Bible today and look at any book of the Bible, you can do it right now if you've still got your Bible there with you, you'll notice that every single book of the Bible is divided into chapters and verses. And there's a lot of misunderstanding when it comes to these divisions. You see, there was a time when the Bible chapters and verses didn't exist. And there was no way to accurately pinpoint a verse except by sort of indicating which section what you're referring to is in or which scroll or in our case, which book it's in. And then generally the area of the scroll or the book that the part you want them to find is in. For example, um, go two thirds into the scroll of Daniel and you'll find the part I'm talking about. Or maybe go right after the story of David and Goliath, but before where Saul threw the spear at him, somewhere in there. So in order to actually use the Bible, you'd have to have a basic knowledge of the entire Bible to know where to find a passage. But eventually Christians developed a need for a more precise way of citing scriptural passages for both the Old and the New Testament. And this became especially important in the creation of concordances, which index every single word in the original language. Now, I'm going to talk more about concordances in an upcoming episode, so stick around for that. But it's important to know that when the books of the Bible were first written, there were no chapters and no verses. They were originally written in letter form or scenes of history or prophecy. The chapters and verses that we have today were added for convenience for reference and quotation and are not considered to be inspired by God. They have been added by humans. The system of chapters that you find in your Bible today was created by a man called Stephen Langton, who was a professor of theology at the University of Paris. He introduced chapter numbers into the Latin Vulgate in 1227 AD. Now, although these chapter divisions make it much easier to find a story or a section of each book of the Bible, it's very important to know that these chapters don't represent where the original authors meant the writing to start and to stop. Now, why do I mention this? Well, I've seen that many, many times people, when they study the Bible, they'll pick up a book of the Bible and they will only study chapters at a time. They start at the top of the chapter and they work their way to the end of the chapter. But that's not always safe because there are places in Langton's chapter divisions where if you're not careful, you can be left with only part of a thought or a scene. And if you limit your study to the boundaries of the chapter, you can find yourself arriving at not correct conclusions. 
And so as a Bible student, it's just important to know how the Bible is laid out, to know its anatomy, so that you know how to use it. Now, even though these new chapters help greatly in sharing and studying and in referencing the Bible, there were still challenges in finding the exact place within the chapter. For example, some chapters can be a 100 to 200 sentences long. And so, again, there was a need for dividing these new chapters into smaller parts. And so, in 1551, a French printer by the name of Robert Stevenus came up with a new system to divide Stephen Langton's chapters into verses. And soon, these divisions became standard in all printed editions of the scriptures in Hebrew, Greek, Latin, and eventually in English. The first English Bible to have these numbered chapters and verses was the Geneva Bible of 1560. Now, even though this new chapter and verse system completely solved the referencing challenges of locating passages in the canon of Scripture, it's extremely important to remember that these divisions are not inspired, but they can serve as a great aid in Bible study. Now, some criticize the verse divisions because in many places... It seems like it's a bit arbitrary on how these verses were created. You see, sometimes a verse represents a single sentence in English. Other times it it includes several sentences. Sometimes it divides a single sentence. So for many Bible students, it's very important to know that the verses in the Bible are there for referencing. And for the most part, they're generally a hindrance to the Bible student. The safest thing for a Bible student is to always look for the thought and the context, not the chapters and the verses. This is why a lot of Bible publishers are starting to move away from the verse layout to a paragraph layout, where the verses are in line. It makes it harder to find the verses when you're looking for a verse number, but it's much better for Bible study. And so this brings us to paragraphs. Most Bibles, when printed, have preserved, to a large extent, the paragraphs of each book of the Bible. In the original Hebrew manuscripts, there were some indications of thought endings and new thought startings. Well, in Greek manuscripts, there's abundant evidence of paragraphs being used. Now, when it comes to our English translations, it really comes down to which publisher printed your Bible as to how they show these paragraphs. There are a number of different ways to depict a paragraph. In some Bibles, it's a paragraph marker. It kind of looks like a back the front P with two lines instead of one line. If you find that at the start of the verse, then you've probably found your paragraph. Other publishers will often capitalize the first word in a verse to signify that that's the beginning of a paragraph. Others will use extra indentation so it stands out visually that this verse is different to the previous. While other publishers will actually print the layout in paragraphs and all the verses are in line as I mentioned before. Paragraphs are always the best way to study the Bible, because generally speaking, a paragraph represents a complete thought. And when we study the Bible, we want to get thoughts in their entirety. And so no matter what Bible you have, as long as you can easily identify the paragraphs, it should be very useful for Bible study. Now this brings me to punctuation. The earliest manuscripts of the Old Testament contain no punctuation whatsoever. But by about 700 AD, a group of Jewish scribes who helped preserve the text of the Old Testament formalized a system of punctuation and included sentence markings, endings, and various other marks within sentences to show major and minor breaks. 
Most of this system was used when the translators created the King James Version. And when it came to the Greek New Testament, there was a special kind of punctuation for words that was deemed sacred. And rudimentary punctuation marks began to appear gradually in the 6th and 7th centuries, usually indicating breaks in sentences. It was not until the 7th century that marks for breathing and accents began to appear into the Greek manuscripts. And so, once again, although punctuation is added to help the modern reader grasp the point of each sentence, punctuation is not inspired. And in some locations within the English translations, there are obvious areas where punctuation marks have been incorrectly placed. Now, this doesn't shake our faith or confidence in the inspiration of the Bible, because the message is still there. Even though chapters have been added to divide it up into manageable chunks and verses have been added to subdivide chapters and punctuation has been added to try and grasp concept, the message is still there. This is just something that Bible students have to keep in mind as they study the Bible. Now, don't forget, if you want to visualize what I've been talking about in this episode, get the infographic that I've created for this episode. Text hash fe 19 info or one word the hash or pound key fe for faith experiment 19 episode 19 info hash fe 19 info text that to 04 and i will send you a link with a graphic of what i'm talking about now here is what i want you to do with today's topic here's where the rubber hits the road or think of this as your homework On the last episode, I challenged you to read portions of the book of Philippians. This week, I want you to answer a few questions about the book of Philippians. Question number one is this. Which testament and which category of the New Testament is Philippians found in? And what's the significance of that? The second question I want you to think about is, as you read through the whole book, It's only a short book, Book of Philippians. Take note where the chapters and verses are and ask yourself this. Does it make sense where this chapter and this verse is from the point of Bible study? Or are there some verses that you need to connect together in order to study it as a series of thoughts? Which brings us to the last task. As you read the book of Philippians, look for the paragraphs. Where are the thoughts? Does your Bible have a way to mark the start of the paragraphs? Do you have the letter P marker there or an indent or the first word capitalized? And then lastly, I want you to text me or email me what your insights are. What have you gained from this exercise? And if I get time, I'm going to share your your findings with the rest of the community on air so that we can all learn from each other in this faith experiment. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I have this great ebook called Deep Teachings of Jesus. It's an ebook which focuses on some of the key teachings of Jesus, and it's really going to help you connect the dots and bring some amazing insights into the simple but profound thoughts of the greatest teacher who has ever lived. You don't want to miss this book. To get today's ebook, all you need to do is text hashtag FE19. That's hash, the symbol or the pound symbol, hash FE for faith experiment and 19 for episode 19. So that's hash FE19. No spaces, just hash FE19. Text that to 04888-45311. That's hash FE19 to 04888-45311. 
1-800-811-811. The Faith FM bot will ask you some questions and reply to you with a link to download this free ebook. Next time on The Faith Experiment, we're going to continue exploring this idea of Bible study. What is it? How does it work? And a whole lot more. And don't forget to give me your feedback. I really do appreciate it. You can text me your comments, questions, and feedback on 4 or email me on robbie at faithfm.com.au. Now, I have some good news and some bad news for next week's episode. The good news is... Me and my wife have just had a brand new baby daughter, so we're super excited for that. That's the good news. The bad news is is that uh, because of that, I'm going to have the next few weeks off. So over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to pick some of my favorite episodes of The Faith Experiment, and we're going to listen to them once again. You can claim all the same free offers and uh, enjoy the show uh, while I am enjoying a brand new baby daughter. So... I'll catch you next week on one of my previous episodes. You have been listening to The Faith Experiment with Robbie Bergen. Right across Australia, right here on Faith FM. Connect with us via text message on 0488 453 11. That's 0488 453 11. Or send an email to robbie at faithfm.com.au and let us know what you thought of this episode.